Thanks, Jake and Dwayne. Um, for those of you who are new to Creekside, um, we like to preach through books of the Bible. So generally, at the beginning of the year, Jake and I and other leadership team members will get together. We'll kind of talk through books, like what are we going to go through now this next year? And so last year, I think we spent all but three weeks going through First and Second Samuel. And, you know, one of the dangers of kind of this approach of book by book and verse by verse, well, it's probably not a danger. Um, one of the predicaments you can often put yourself in is that you have to preach passages that you normally would skip over. Like, you know, you'd come to a passage, you're like, that's going to be a tough one. Let's just skip it. You know, that's we don't do that. We just preach through it all. So last week we hit one of those interesting passages in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. And, you know, essentially this church was selling, the early church was selling all that they had, and they were giving it to people who were in need. And it's, it's actually an amazing passage, but practically speaking, you know, as a, as a pastor, it can be very difficult to apply. Like you, you see that church in Acts and then you, you measure it. Okay. Well, how, what are we doing in these areas? And you're just like, yeah, that doesn't jive. And it's, it's, you know, it's difficult to say, man, we want to look like that, but how do we look like that? And what do we do? And so I, you know, first of all, I just want to start by saying thanks. Cause last week we threw out a few ideas to help people with the goal, I should say, of helping people in our church family who have needs. Um, physical needs, spiritual needs, emotional needs, and the response we got was off the charts with people saying, you know, I got phone calls, I got emails, text messages just saying, I don't know what that looks like, I don't know what you plan to do, but I, you know, that sounds really cool and we want to we wanna be a part. Like if we can meet a need in some way, we want to do it. And so for those of you, first of all, for those of you who missed the sermon, I would go listen to it. We have all of our sermons online. We actually, just to save you a little bit of time, have carved out the last eight minutes of the sermon, and it's just that little section. So if you go on our website, it actually says generosity, and it's just those last eight to ten minutes of the sermon where we kind of explained what we were doing. Now, I prefer you listen to the whole sermon because you kind of get it in the same vein, but you know we at least want you to do that. But the, the gist of it, the goal, the short version, is that if you go to this church and you have a need a physical, emotional, spiritual need, we want you to go grab one of those cards in the back wall on the prayer board. We want you to write it down. Electric bill, 125 bucks. Like I have been crying out to the Lord. I have had this need for a long time. I, I you know, it's just, it's not being met. I'm, I'm afraid this is going to happen or this is going to happen. And I just don't know what to do because I know there are people in here who are like that. Like we all go through those situations and times in life where that's just, life throws you a curveball and you don't know what you're going to do. And so if that's you, we want you to go back there. We want you to write that need. You can write your name on the other side so no one has to know who you are. Just write electric bill, whatever it is, you know, whatever, whatever that need is, car payment. And then if you're in here and you can meet that need, we want you to look at the needs up there and say, I can meet that need. So we want you to write a check to Creekside that says, you know, Creekside Church, $300 in the memo line, just write car payment. And we'll meet that need. Like, we, we want to be a church that recognizes there are people in this congregation that have needs, and we want to be a church that meets those needs, okay? And then on the other side of the coin, there's a world of people out there who we want to experience the generosity of Christ. Like, we want them to, to understand who he is. So we handed out these little cards. We printed a 1,000 of them, and we want you to grab as many as you want. If they're gone, we'll just keep printing them. And the goal is this just to be who we are as a church. Like this is built into the DNA of who we are as a church. So on the one side of the card, it just says something extra to show you God loves you. 
that picture just says God loves you. It says something extra to show you God loves you. And in the back it says, and so do we, Creekside Church. And we kind of went back and forth on, do we say Creekside Church or do we just say something extra to show you God loves you? But the reality is, if, if God is moving in somebody's life and God is working in somebody's life, and you are in that position where there's been a divine moment where God says, you need to bless this person financially. Like, I want them to know who we are. The reality is, if they get that card and you leave them an outrageous tip, and they're like, and don't be leaving no 5% tip or 10% tip and leave this card. You can do that, just don't leave the card. All right, you got to be, like, I want somebody to get this, to get the bill and get the tip and say, there is a God in heaven. Like, this is, like, this is a huge need. So if you do that, we want someone to actually be able to say, I know God's pursuing me, and I want to, I want to find out more about him. And that's why we want them to know they can come here, and that we care about them, and we love them. So it's, it's not about Creekside Church. It's just about a God in heaven, and it's about us wanting to meet needs. I had somebody tell me after the first service that they put this, they put this on the table. They went out for a Valentine's lunch or something. They put this on the table, and they said, he said, we left a 50% tip, which he goes, we never do. But he said, we left a 50% tip, and he goes, I just put it on there. I left the card. He said, I was walking away, and he goes, I couldn't help but look back and see, and he said, I see the girl walk over, and she picks it up, and she looks at the card, and then she looks at the bill, and he said, I look at her, and I can just see tears coming down her face. Like, the reality is, is that people go on day after day after day, and they have needs, and they may never cross paths with a Christian who actually cares about them. Like, they, they hear that there's a God in heaven that loves them, but they haven't experienced a Christian who loves them. And, and that's really who we want to be as a church. There's nothing, like I said, there's nothing magical about these cards. There's nothing magical about the back wall. It's just trying to be practical, trying to help people actually meet needs. And, and the reality is maybe, maybe what this is going to do for you is just going to help you start a conversation. Maybe it just helps you focus. No, normally you'd go to dinner and not even think twice about your server or anything else that's going on. You just have a nice meal. You get up, you leave. Maybe, if anything, this just helps you with your focus. Where am I going to leave the card? All right, we're going to leave the card for this person here. Okay, and you just, now you're thinking gospel-minded. Now you're thinking, what can we do? Now you're actually, might even ask her, how can we pray for, I mean, there's just so many things that these might help you do that just help your focus throughout the week. Like, look for opportunities to share your faith. I have a good friend named Silby. who used to live here. Now he's full-time um, missions in northern India. Um, and since he's on the road a lot, we don't get to talk as much as either of us would like to. We probably email maybe once a month. Um, and I'll keep him in the loop on what's happening here at Creekside and with my family, and then he fills me on what's going on with him. And every time I talk to him, I'm encouraged, but I'm challenged by his focus on the gospel. Like, you know, just his focus is out of this world. He looks at every opportunity in his life. God, what are you doing? How can I show people who you are? But it's just how he lives his life. I got a letter from him not too long ago. Here's what it said. And these are how they all are. It says, greetings in the name of Jesus. We serve an amazing God. His ways no one can understand. Those who fear him and seek him lack nothing. Recently on our way to Delhi, we got caught in an unexpected curfew in one of the poorest villages in India. Thankfully, a missionary hospital opened their doors for us, but would you believe this large hospital didn't have a single doctor on staff? During our stay, I was asked to pray for a young boy who was brain dead. Not knowing what to say, not knowing what to say, I said, Lord, if this boy can bring glory to your name, heal him. Later that night, I went 
and met with the boy's parents, and they thought I was the doctor. So they were pleading with me for their son's life. I told this mom to put her hand on the boy and say that there is victory in the blood of Jesus. The following afternoon, I was told that the boy got discharged from the hospital, and he seems to be doing well. Please pray he would bring glory to Jesus. When I came to India, I asked God to provide for me a hundred Bibles every month. In a few days, out of nowhere, a Christian businessman who worked in pharmaceuticals showed up and took me to his warehouse in North Delhi. There were boxes everywhere, and he was boasting that these boxes had enough medicine to cure all the problems in India. We opened one of the boxes, and it was filled with a New Testament. A hundred thousand, to be exact. God will do greater things when we ask him anything according to his will. Continue to pray for us. Persecution is on the rise. In the most recent wave, we had a, near, a few near-death experiences. In fact, while you read this letter, I'm on my way out of Delhi to bring a boy back to his family. This boy went through some severe persecution this past week and wanted to go home. I often tell these young men that we should fill our hearts with the promises of God. Lord, it's because we have chosen the narrow way that we face persecution. But your word promises that you will go with us. You will take care of all of our needs, and you will fight our battles. Let me know if there's anything I can pray for you for. Thanks, Sylvie. So I usually get done reading these letters because I said they're all like this. And I just sit there for a few minutes because that's pretty heavy. Would you agree? I mean, you get these once a month. He's kind of recapping how the month has gone. It's just, it's heavy. So, you know, I just got done telling him, you know, that I got a new client at work or, you know, it's like... <laughs> Audrey's starting to walk now, and, you know, or um, oh, Creekside's attendance, you know, we, had, we hit 300 last, you know, all these little things, and then he shares his stuff, like he responds to my email, and it's just like, well, that kind of puts things in perspective, right? <laughs> and so I get done reading, and I'm like, I have all these emotions going on, like it's encouraging, it's challenging, but, you know, it, it's convicting at the same time. And if you know him, I don't know if some of you know him, but if you're with him in person, like, it's even more powerful because he's, like, that's just how he is. He's always, his focus, I've never seen anybody like it. I've never seen anybody, like, in real life that I know them where their focus is just so set on the Lord, like, so set, like, he's just gospel-minded. One time we were in India, we were headed to the Taj Mahal, and if you've ever been to the Taj Mahal, you usually leave Delhi, you take a train, and so we're waiting on the platform, There's, you know, everybody's speaking Hindi, I can't communicate with anybody, I can't even listen to the trains coming, I know nothing, but still he's there as a translator, and there's a train coming, which I think is ours, and I look over, and he's gone. I'm like, great, what do I do? Do I get on the train? Do I just sit here? So, of course, I just stayed put, because if I'm gone, I could get lost in a sea of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, so I sit there, and I see him eventually kind of down the way, and he's conversing with this guy just talking to him, and, you know, eventually I see him pull in his pocket and pull out one of those 100,000 New Testaments, and he gives him this New Testament, and then he walks back over, and he's like, all right, you ready? It's like, like nothing happened, and then we get on the train, and we're, you know, another guy comes and sits next to us, and I'm thinking to myself, I wonder how long before he actually tells him about Jesus. I didn't say a word. I'm just sitting there. I'm kind of counting. All right, how long does he go? Eight minutes. It was eight minutes, all right? And I was like, man, you're kind of slacking, you know, it's compared to... <laughs> And he's like, you know, he's probably thinking, okay, well, it's an hour train ride, and, you know, if the guy doesn't want anything to do with it, it'll be awkward. So he lasted eight minutes. But that, that, honestly, that's how every day goes with Sylvie. Like, he's extremely public with his faith, even in a country where persecution is very real. And every time I ask him about the persecution aspect of it, I just got an email from him last night, and he was talking about persecution. He doesn't say it so I feel bad for him. He says it because he's asking for prayer. 
but I got an email from him last night. He was talking about it. And every time I say, well, what, you know, what, what can we do? How can I be praying for you? Because I'm thinking, should I just be praying, Lord, that it stops or something? And he says, you know, you need to pray that I stay strong. That's what I'm asking for. Just pray that I will stay strong, which sounds weird until you read the Bible. And then you realize what the Bible says, and there's passages like 2 Timothy that say, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Like, notice it doesn't say, some of you reading this letter will be persecuted. It says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And it's a very intimidating statement, if we're honest. Like, we can act all hardcore, but that is a very intimidating statement. Am I right? When you read that and you're just kind of thinking through that. Now, here's the reality. The reality is if you're super private about your faith, you probably won't have any persecution. I mean, if if no one knows you're Christian and no one knows what you stand for, then obviously you'll rarely have opposition. But as soon as you take a stand, for whatever reason, there's likely, as soon as you make your faith public, then you'll likely have some kind of persecution. Now, we live in a country where I believe that, you know, most of it's just verbal. I don't know if too many people actually getting beaten in the United States for their faith. So most of it is just verbal, but it still is real. It's in a sense, it's a, it's a real persecution. Today, as we jump into Acts chapter 5, you can go ahead and turn there if you want. We actually will find the apostles in a very similar situation. They have gathered in the public square, so they're making their faith public, and they're about to preach the gospel, and it's not long until we see the persecution begin. Okay, and this is going to be a pattern through the rest of the book of Acts. But I think the thing when I'm reading this and studying this and preparing to preach this, the thing that's unique to me, it's like really interesting, is at the end it says, and they rejoice. They are persecuted and they rejoice. All right, they rejoice. Here's what it says, and we'll get to it at the end. They rejoice that they were worthy to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Like that just stood out to me with like neon lights. They were... They rejoiced that they were worthy to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Anybody in here ever rejoiced over persecution? Me neither. Like, I, that's, that's what I expected. And so you, you really got to read this in the context of it and you, to understand what they're saying. So let's dive in. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So at this point, the church probably has 15 to 20,000 people, we would guess, maybe more. And it just keeps growing and growing and growing. Like every five to 10 verses, you, you read something that says, and more were added to their number, or the church continued to grow. So that's what's happening. There's a couple things we think that are kind of driving this growth. Okay, one is the love, the generosity, and the unity among the believers. We read that last week. All right, there's no human explanation for the things that are happening. Like, there's just, it's, it's literally supernatural, Holy Spirit-driven, and it's something I think that we see a lot of people in need, especially, are drawn to. Like, they're down and out. They don't know what's going to happen, and the Lord is using this to draw them in. The Lord's going to meet your needs. He's going to meet it through people, but he's going to meet your needs. And so there, this is happening. And the other thing I think that's driving the growth is the fact that the apostles, as it said, are in Solomon's portico, and they're preaching the word. Okay, so every day they come to Solomon's portico and they preach the word. I have a picture of the temple, at least as we believe the temple looked. 
And you can see this is, this would be called Herod's temple. Solomon's temple was a little different, a little smaller, but Herod had the temple rebuilt. So this is Herod's temple on the left. The back left is where most scholars believe Solomon's portico was. And it's just a part of the colonnade that goes down where they would stand daily and preach the word. I have another kind of artistic drawing of it. Um, So this might be what it looks like under the portico. We're actually standing there. So people would mill about and they would just be standing in these colonnades, just proclaiming the word every single day. And I think it's called, at least most scholars think it's called Solomon's portico because they think it's the last standing, those columns were actually standing from the original temple, the one that Solomon built. And so they think that that portion of it, so they just always refer to it as Solomon's porch. And even if it wasn't the actual colonnades, that was the location where it was. So that's just what they referred to it as. Um, And the interesting thing is, as you read the Gospels, it's actually one of the places that Jesus would teach. So Jesus would come and he would teach there as well. And these days you didn't go into the temple, right? You'd actually go into the temple. The temple is where they offered sacrifices. So it's a place where, where the Lord dwelt, like in the tabernacle or in Solomon's temple. You would descend into the Holy of Holies. And so it's not like you were going necessarily inside this temple so people would mill about in the courtyard and the areas around it. And so I, I found it really interesting that this is where they would go to share the word. Because as I mentioned, this is exactly where Jesus went. And if you read the passage that we're about to read, it's very reminiscent. Like the people who are listening... And the people who are coming to hear these disciples and apostles are really, it's the explanation of the exact same people that came to hear Jesus when he preached. So listen to Acts 5.14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even, they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with the unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So you have to imagine what's going on here. Like pictured in your head, they're bringing people on cots, the people with unclean spirits. I mean, they're all coming around, hoping that Peter is there that day, and just hoping that maybe even his shadow would fall on them so they could be healed. And this is like, we we kind of refer to these as apostolic healings. All right, and this is, like, this is what the Lord was using to validate the message. They didn't have the Bible. The, 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 the books of the New Testament weren't written yet. So the people would come, and they're like, what are you preaching? What are you even talking about? And then God would use these apostolic events to confirm the message. These people would be blown away. Like they would, they would associate these events. Okay, well, Jesus was here, and Jesus was doing the exact same thing. So in Matthew chapter 4, you see that. And he went through all Galilee. This is talking about Jesus. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So it's, it's, it's always been fascinating to me when you, when you study the, the ministry of Jesus. As he walked the streets of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, it's always been, I guess, fascinating to me, the people who embraced his message. It wasn't the Pharisees. Wasn't the, it wasn't the people that you would expect to embrace his message. These are religious people who are learned. Like they, they know things. They've studied things. They can read. They can see the prophecies. Like that's who I would expect to embrace the message. That's not who embraced the message. It was the people who were down and out. It was the poor. It was the sick. It was the widowed. It was the orphan. It was, I mean, it was just 
basically people who are probably at wit's end. Like that's the people who accompanied Jesus. There's like there's two people side by side, a Pharisee and there's someone who's down and out. And it's just it's amazing to me two people hear the exact same message, one embraces it, one wants nothing to do with it. Like it's it's just always been hard for me to understand. And I've actually seen this, we'll bring Silby back up. I've seen this firsthand working with Silby in India because India is one of those countries that has a pretty large gap like economically between the poor. I mean, the poor of India are poor. I mean, there are, there are kids living in the streets and on trains and in trash heaps. I mean, it is the poor of India are poor. And there's, there's not much of a middle class. As of the last probably 15 to 20 years, the middle class has grown as the U.S. and other countries have tapped into them for various reasons. It used to be China. Now we've tapped into India for everything from call centers to, you know, there's a lot of manufacturing going on. And so the middle class is growing. But historically, Man, there was a huge divide. And so when you're, when you're in that country, that divide still exists. So if, when I'm walking around with Sylvie and other pastors and they're, they're preaching the word, like to go into a town or village and they sit there and they preach the word, you'll see people side by side. And there's someone who you know, you can tell. They're down and out. They're like life has, I mean, that's, curveball is even the right word. Like life has punched them in the face. And then you see someone next to them, they're really nice, nicely dressed and, and two people listen. And in the end, Nine times out of 10, only one response. One is in tears. And so often the one in tears is the one who's hurting. Like it's, it's just the way it is. I think of it, you know, like people who get saved later in life. You didn't get saved, you didn't go to church as a kid, or you didn't, you didn't, you didn't profess faith in Christ as a kid. A lot of times it takes an experience in your adult life where you are at rock bottom for who you realize that you can't do it on your own. You finally come to the place where you're like, I can't do this anymore. And you know the Lord is the answer because he's been pursuing you and pursuing you and pursuing you. And I'm not saying rock bottom, like, you know, where you don't have any money or anything. I just mean at, you're at wit's end. And so, I mean, and I think the same thing is happening. Turn over to Matthew 5. I'm going to rabbit trail this a little longer because I think this is really important. Matthew 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what most scholars believe is Jesus' first sermon when he came on this, when he started his ministry. We don't know if it was one sermon. We don't know if it was a collection of different sermons. But Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he says. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I think it's no coincidence, the very first teachings of Jesus, the very first command we really hear from him is, blessed are the poor in spirit. And you read that, at least I've read it historically, and I'm like, okay, blessed are the poor. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, the poor, like what does what have to do with anything, but it has nothing to do with riches. Jesus says, poor in spirit. And it's really important when you think back to Acts chapter 5. Because in Acts chapter 5, there are two groups of people. There's the Jewish ruling class, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And their approach to the gospel, their approach to Jesus is very, just like we saw when Jesus was alive on earth, I don't need you. Like, I, I have the power, I have the prestige, I have the money. I mean, Jesus himself said it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And that, that it is because of self-sufficiency. 
Like you don't think you need the Lord. They have a very, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, they have a very prideful approach, a self-sufficient approach to the Lord. And then there's this other group in Acts chapter 5, and they know they're in need. They're being brought to the feet of these apostles who are on behalf of the Holy Spirit in them, healing people in the name of Jesus. And they're telling them, Jesus is the one that is healing you. It's not me. Jesus is the one through his spirit in my life who's the one who is healing you. And their approach at first might be physical, but it's a totally different way they're approaching the gospel of Jesus. And I think that's why Jesus starts his ministry by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's like a sense of spiritual bankruptcy. You're bankrupt until you're filled with the spirit. There's nothing in you that's going to get to heaven on your own. And that's what salvation's all about. When, if you think back to when you placed your faith in Christ, and if you haven't, this is probably a really good time to listen here as well. But when you place your faith in Christ, you are essentially saying, I can't do this on my own. I, I'm, I'm bankrupt without him. Like I, there's nothing I have without him in me. Now, once he is, with, now once he is in me, I can do anything. But without him, I'm nothing. Like, I'm a sinner. I need you, Lord. You took my place on the cross. You died for me. And that's why I think they're all summed up in that very first line of Jesus' very first teaching. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus knew. Jesus knew in biblical times, and he knew today, that there would be people who see their need for a Savior and those who don't. In the case of the Pharisees, just don't get it. And so that verse 17, and this, this picture we get in verse 17 is just, it's, it's just so symbolic of what we're reading. It says, but the high priest rose up. All right, Luke is actually giving you a picture of pride. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. It's like, anti-everything we just read in the Sermon on the Mount. Textbook definition of pride. I have no doubt that Luke is writing that for a reason. The high priest rose up. Instead of humbling and bowing, it's the opposite. And if you remember from prior weeks, Jake went over the Sadducees. They were a group that was probably a little friendly with Rome. They craved power. They were Jewish, but they craved power. They didn't believe in the resurrection, which is exactly what the apostles were preaching. They didn't believe in angels which is going to be very ironic because angels are what are going to get them out of prison in a few verses. So it's probably a little irony there too. Um, And they were almost always wealthy. They were the religious elite of the day. So, you know, when I'm reading this, I'm thinking to myself, what do you think their issue was? What did Jesus and his disciples represent that enraged them so much? They were furious. So, I mean, what was it? And I think for the Sadducees, it was like this perfect mix of everything that they hated. It was the resurrection of Christ. It was the selling of everything you had, which they didn't want anything to do with that. That was probably the biggest problem. And there was like this, this shift, this, the humbling yourself. People were humbling themselves. They were coming to Christ. And they're like, no, we don't need to humble ourselves. Like this is, you can picture what's going through their mind. And there was a shift of power happening in Jerusalem. And if you are a person in power and you want to hold on to that power, you don't like a shift of power. Would you agree? Uh, like that, That's probably the biggest problem right there. Because, I mean, they'd had to be idiots to be mad over the fact that people were being healed, people were being cared for, 
good works were being done? I mean, what's wrong with that? Like, these are amazing acts of God, but they are threatened. All right, Luke says also, he says, they were filled with jealousy. Like, that's, that's the root of what's causing this. And so they put the apostles in prison. Verse 19, but during the night, so they're in prison, but during the night, an angel of the Lord, keep in mind the Sadducees don't like angels or don't believe in angels, opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So they went right back to where they were arrested from and told not to go back. They're freed and they go right back. And it's such, a, it's such an interesting picture that Luke is painting because here's the thing. In reality, let me say it this way. We are freed for the exact same reason. You and me are freed for the exact same reason. Like we are enslaved to sin. We humble ourselves. We embrace the Lord. He gives us the Holy Spirit who says, you're free. Now go preach to other people who are enslaved. That's what they're doing. They they are freed from prison to go preach to people who are metaphorically enslaved, who are in prison. And it's such a great picture. It's like, Lord, like, I'm so thankful that I have my freedom. I want to tell other people about this freedom. Like, that's what they're doing. Like, I'd rather just hang out with people who are free all day, because that would be way easier. But I know there's a world out there that's not. And I have a responsibility to tell them. So verse 21, now when the high priest came, so the high priest wakes up, it's the next day, and obviously they have no idea what's going on. So when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the, the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this, would come to, what this would come to. So, good news and bad news. The good news is the prison doors are still locked. The bad news, there's nobody in there. Right? That's the message they get. And it says they're perplexed, obviously. Verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, because they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, which would have been the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I love that they couldn't even use his name. They couldn't even use the name of Jesus. Like, I, they obviously understand the power in the name of Christ. They say, we strictly charge you not to teach, what? In this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So they bring the disciples, they bring them before the council, and the official charge is this. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. That's the charge. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And I wonder if the same could be said about us in Tampa and Lutz. And obviously, I get it. We're not that old of a church, two, three years old. Like, we're not at the point in our, our little history where it would be, I mean, we could, right? The Holy Spirit could use us to do that. But what an amazing thing that the, what God has done through these disciples. All of Jerusalem is filled with the gospel because of the message 
of these guys, these 12 people, all of Jerusalem. And, and I, I had to ask myself this week as I was studying this, I was like, like, is that even on my radar? Is that even a desire that I have that all of Tampa and all of Lutz would know who Jesus is? Honestly. Like, of course, I'm a pastor and I would think, oh, yes, of course. But if, if it really was on my radar, maybe I'd be praying. Like, just, like, is it something I seriously would like? Like, if it's a desire, then I should be praying about it. Like, if it's a desire for you, then you should be praying about it. Like, that God would fill the streets of Tampa and Lutz with his gospel. It's, a, it's an obviously a huge task, but we would all agree we serve a big God. Would you agree? So let me ask you this. How about your desire for the gospel to fill your neighborhood? Is that something you pray for? How about for the gospel to fill your workplace? Is that a desire you have? For the gospel to fill your workplace? How about your home? Do you have a desire to see the gospel fill your home or your family? How about you? Do you have a desire for the gospel to penetrate your heart? I don't mean getting saved. I mean growing more and more like Christ. Because here's the thing. Maybe you are the answer to all those other things. These 12 guys filled a huge, huge, huge city with the gospel. Like maybe you are the answer to all those other questions. Like maybe God is going to fill you with his gospel and with his spirit, he will use you to transform your family. He'll use you to transform your home. He'll use you personally to transform your neighborhood. And maybe he'll use you to help shape your church and this city. And with other churches, we can come together and we can be used to actually fill this city with the gospel. Because, you know, I've, I've, a, I've think that sometimes we think that's too big of a task. Like, it, oh, that could never, I mean, to, to change, like God could use us to change our entire city. It, it, I feel like sometimes we don't even pray it, maybe because we just don't even think it can happen. And I want to challenge you to pray it. I, I want to seriously challenge you to challenge myself. I have not been praying that way. Full disclosure, I have not been praying that way, but that's going to change. Because I want to see God do what he did in Jerusalem. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered. So they're getting, they're getting kind of yelled at by the Sanhedrin. And they answered, we must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So the Jewish leader said, look, we told you, back when you healed the paralyzed man, and we brought you before us, we told you to stop preaching the gospel. We said, stop preaching the name of Jesus. We let you go, and now you're back in here doing the same thing. And so their response, which I love, we must obey God rather than man. That's their response. And it's such a loaded statement because, you know, biblically, we have a responsibility to obey the laws and leaders we live under. So you might not like that. 
But there is a biblical response to live under the laws and the leaders that God has placed over us. I'm not saying you like them. I'm not saying you have to, you, you know, you love everything about them. I'm saying you have to respect them. Biblically, you have to respect them. When the apostles stand before the Sanhedrin, they are great examples of sincerity and humility. There's nothing aggressive about them. There's nothing outrageous about them. They are literally just stating their case very respectfully, right? And I'm sure, I, I mean, I guarantee you they didn't like these guys very much. This wasn't a democracy, but if it was, they would not have voted for this high priest, I can assure you, right? This is just not, this is not what it was, but they show respect. They're not belligerent. They're not angry. They're not blasting them on social media, right? Because they, there is a way to respectfully disagree. All right, I'm going to pull a little tiny soapbox, and I'm going to jump right back off it, just for the record. We are entering 2020, which is an election year. We might have a lot of changes coming our way, right? And all I'm going to say, well, we'll save the sermon for a different sermon for a different day. But here's the thing. There is very likely going to come a point in the near future where you, you will not appreciate who is in office. Maybe you don't appreciate who's in office now. Maybe you don't appreciate what you think is coming. Maybe you don't appreciate like who's getting elected here and who's getting elected here and all this stuff is happening. But here's the thing. We, we have a gospel that God has given us to preach. And I think we have a responsibility to do it respectfully. Right? Kind of the, and I'm just as guilty. These passive aggressive articles you repost on social media where you don't really even say anything, but you're insinuating what the other person wrote in the article and it's really, you know, it blasts everybody out. I mean, come on. Everybody knows, everybody knows that you hold the same views. But the reality is, I think we could probably win more souls for Christ by being respectful than we can by blasting opponents. I mean, I, I really, and I'm, this is not a political statement at all. I'm just, it's just reality. I have my views. I have my opinions. And I think we have a, it says, you know, we must respectfully obey God rather than man. There will be situations where maybe our government says, does something that you do not agree with. There could be drugs that are legalized that you don't agree with. There might be situations that come where you do have to take a stand, just like they did. Right? But there are also people that we live under and laws and, and leaders that we live under, and we need to show them respect. So here's the thing. They are taken in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, which I can assure you they dislike almost everybody on that council. But here's what I love about it. They take advantage of the moment. They could have said anything. Like they take advantage of the moment. If you read through Acts, you're going to notice that about all these opportunities. Like the disciples look at every situation in life as an opportunity to share the gospel. It's so crazy to me. It's like, like what I think what Silby does, right? It's exactly what he does. He looks at these moments. Like I'm on the in the platform thinking about the Taj Mahal. He's on the platform looking around. Who can I share my faith with? I'm like, really? We don't have any time for that. Come back over here. Let's go to the Taj. Like, let's hang out. Let's see what's, you know, we're there. I'm like, all right, get in front of a, let's get a picture. He's like, no, I'm going to go share my faith with this guy. I'm like, Silby, there's a time for that. He goes, yeah, it's right now. <laughs> This, this is the, like every opportunity he has, he looks at it as a moment, like it is his Sanhedrin moment. You're going to see an Acts, you're going to see people be arrested, they're going to share their faith. They're going to be put in prison, they're going to share their faith. In front of the Sanhedrin, they're going to share their faith. They get brought to court, they're going to share their faith. Like it's a different way, and I'm, I'm going to admit to you firsthand, I am not there. It is a different way of looking at your life. 
a different way of, it's like through gospel lenses. I got a flat tire. Oh, Satan did that. No, maybe God did that because he wants you to share your faith with the guy at the tire shop. Like, it's just a, it's a different way of viewing things. I was in Michigan this week for work. And, you know, I hate being in Michigan in February just because there's a lot of snow. I love Michigan as a state, but February, there's a lot of snow. So I was in Michigan, and we're, we're getting back to the, to the gate. I'm waiting for my plane, and we're about to board. We have to connect through Detroit because there's no direct flights. And so the lady gets on the little announcement thing, and she says, I um, just want to let you guys know that, unfortunately, your pilot has called in sick. Um, and we have to fly one in from either Minneapolis or Detroit, and you'll be about a three-and-a-half-hour delay. Um, it's really not that big of a deal. It's a first-world problem. But uh, um, So I'm, I'm at the airport, and Caleb in Victoria, Caleb who works with us is there, and, or not there, but he's here, and so we're working on some things together. So I'm like, well, i got three-and-a-half hours to kill. I'll call Caleb, and you know, we'll work on some, some stuff. We're working on some teaching stuff here as a church and discipleship programs and stuff, and so I was like, maybe we'll just call him, and we'll talk through some of these things. And so I call him, and he, this is exactly what he said. He goes, you know, well, maybe God wanted... He's going to use this situation where you have three and a half hours now to share your faith with somebody. I was like, Caleb, I'm pretty sure that's not what's happening here. I just, I just, I just miss, I'm just going to miss my flight. And he goes, no, seriously. Like, why, why, would, it, why would you not? You're sitting next to somebody for three and a half hours. And we're, I mean, we weren't arguing about it, but he was just kind of enlightening me. Um, that how, you're like, look, I'm like, Caleb, God doesn't use every situation. And he goes, maybe he does. And I was like... Maybe he does. <laughs> but here's the deal. Don't miss your Sanhedrin moments because you're all going to have them. Don't miss those moments where God has given you someone to tell about him. God has given you someone. It's going to happen. I mean, it happens more than we know. Like somebody, you know, during dinner with a friend and they say, hey, what, you know, what, tell me about a little bit about your faith. You can go really in depth or you can just kind of skirt the issue. You know, your neighbors come over for dinner. Hey, what do you guys do on the weekends? Well, I could tell them all about Saturday, or I could tell them all about Sunday. Like, there, there's, there's a moment that we all have all the time where these questions are asked, and we can walk this way, or we can walk that way. We can make our faith public, or we can keep it private. And our, our, our natural response is to keep it private, because we don't want to be persecuted, even if that persecution is just verbal. You know, it's this guy or girl that comes in your office. Like, man, life's been so rough lately. You are not going to believe what happened. And you know, deep down, that could lead to a conversation about what Christ has done for you in your moments when you've been down and out. Or you could just say, keep your head up. Right? I mean, we've all done that. And so there, there are these moments and people are going to be blessed if you take a stand. And you say, I'm going to use that moment, my Sanhedrin moment, if you will, to tell others about him. So they use their moment. They speak truth. And here it is. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged, the Sanhedrin was, and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. 
He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. That's wisdom. We could preach a whole sermon on that. But he was, how right he was. Verse 39, and we wrap up the chapter. And so they took his advice, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So I, I totally get the beating. I totally get the fact that the Sanhedrin told them to stop preaching the word, that they didn't listen, and that they were beaten. Like, I, I totally get that. But what always throws me for a loop is that they left rejoicing. Like, why not just get the beating and move on? Like, why, like seriously, why are they rejoicing over the beating? And I, and I wonder, I, I don't know the answer. I wonder if it's not maybe a, a little confirmation that what they're doing is right. I mean, Jesus said, those who follow me will be persecuted. And if you're the early church and that hasn't happened yet, you might be wondering, what, are we doing something wrong? So they get this beating, and it's like, okay, we are headed down the right path. Because not only was Jesus persecuted himself, beaten, hung on a cross, killed, rose again, but he said it would happen to his followers. And it, and it comes, and it did come from the early church all the way through the, the days of Nero and the Roman emperors to the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages and all the way up now today to, to ISIS. If you make your faith public you will endure persecution on some level. not saying it's going to be physical persecution, but you will endure persecution. And our first reaction, at least my first reaction, especially when like Silby says he's being persecuted, all right, let me just pray for it to stop. Because that's, I mean, nobody likes that, right? I mean, think about it. When you get ridiculed for the name of Christ, what goes through your mind? Someone makes fun of you. Again, Paul would probably look at that persecution and be like, but if somebody like cracks on you, makes fun of your faith, ridicules you, what goes through your mind? Is it joy? Is it rejoicing? Is it excitement? Is it gratefulness? Probably not. If you're anything like me, it's fear, anxiety, and worry. Like when somebody verbally assaults me for my faith, that's what goes through your mind. But maybe, just maybe, we should rejoice. Do you think you would look at persecution, verbal assault differently if you were excited about it? <laughs> if you rejoiced when it came because you knew it was coming? Like it means I'm doing something right. It means I'm walking the path that God would have me walk. It sounds so weird. I get it. But it's, it's reality. Paul tells the church at Philippi, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. There's his first revelation, and John writes, They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Listen to that. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Luke says they, they, they rejoice because they've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And I'm not saying it was easy. I have no doubt that our early church 
when they heard of this persecution and those disciples walked back into their gathering places and they were beat up and bruised and whipped and they were bleeding and they walked back into this gathering of believers. I have no clue that everybody in there looked at them and been, I mean, what if Jake and I walked in and we had been publicly beaten for our faith? And Jake comes up here on a Sunday morning and he is bloody and just messed up from a beating. Like, that's real. You look at him and you're like, okay. Like, I have a, I have a decision to make. Do I, do, I, do I keep going? Or is this my last Sunday here? And Satan's going to tell you it's your last Sunday here. And God's going to say, rejoice. Because they did it to the prophets. They did it to those who came before you. They did it to disciples. And they did it to me. God's going to say, rejoice. And so these people are going to be gathered around, and no doubt there's going to be some question and some saying they should leave. And I, I don't know if this happened, but I, I would assume somebody pulled out the book of Matthew and they read the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to close with that. It says, here, here's what it says. Jesus' first words on earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they have persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we love you and we we thank you for this passage, Lord. Thank you for Acts chapter 5. Lord, the onset of persecution in the early church. And Lord, we see this even next week and the following weeks, Lord, we see it progress where Stephen becomes the first martyr and the church is scattered, Lord, and really for the rest of the book of Acts, it's there to stay. And Lord, I thank you that we live in a country right now where we do have freedom. But Lord, I pray if it ever were to change, Lord, that we would stand strong. Lord, that we would pray for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who live in countries where persecution is a real thing. Lord, that we would pray for them. We would ask you on their behalf that they would stay strong. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for Creekside Church and all the churches in Tampa that are preaching your word today. Lord, we love you and we thank you in your name. Amen. Amen.